Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. I look forward to the the next podcast. That's not me. I don't need to listen to myself, but the, the one after that. <laughs> <laughs>
We are here with Rob Bonta, the Attorney General of the great state of California. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me. So you were very involved in housing debates at the Capitol when you were a state legislator. How does that perspective inform how you approach your current role? Working on housing issues from housing production legislation to tenant protections to the three P's, production, preservation, and protection hasn't changed for me. That's been a top priority. I've always seen our housing challenges in the state of California as a full-on state of crisis, a full-on state of emergency, and worked aggressively with my colleagues in the legislature who shared that view to make progress and to move the needle and to pass legislation that generated more housing, protected tenants, as well as securing budget allocations to do the same. And unfortunately, the challenge has not dissipated. Every night, an estimated 150,000 Californians sleep in shelters or on the street. Another 700,000 Californians are moments away from an eviction notice being taped to their door. And we have 17 million renters who spend too much of their paychecks on rent. And just for housing, we have a new medium single-family home price of a record 800,000 in California. So we see the crisis everywhere, the housing affordability and homelessness crisis from Fresno to Fremont, San Diego to San Francisco, LA to Loomis, and families everywhere are facing a housing shortage and affordability crisis of epic proportions. And I want to use the full power of the attorney general's office to continue the work that I did as a legislator, to continue to make progress, to continue to build towards that 1.5 million to 2.5 million housing units that we need to adequately house Californians to make sure that the laws on the books that spur housing production, that protect tenants, that they're being followed, that they're being honored. They're there for a reason. And so we're there to enforce them all with the goal of helping California families struggling with the unaffordability of housing be able to secure housing. So I did a lot of work as a legislator. That work has only continued. And I believe we have a, a challenge that's unprecedented. We also have pro-housing laws that are unprecedented in the state of California. And my office has unprecedented authority to enforce those laws. So I'm proud that our California Department of Justice Attorney General's office under my leadership has, in my view, been the most aggressive when it comes to housing of any Attorney General's office in the history of California. A big one of those laws is the housing element. It's impossible for the AG's office and the Housing Community Development Department to know the development potential of every single parcel in California. Yet so much of that housing element of the housing planning process relies on cities making such claims about land in their community. How can there not be inconsistent treatment of cities in enforcement actions given these underlying facts? We are all trying to realize the vision that we are in an unprecedented challenge that is common to all of us in the state of California. There is shared responsibility is required to address that challenge. Nobody needs to do everything, but everybody must do something, whether it be a housing element or arena numbers or enforcement of laws to create more housing or enforcement of tenant protection. We're asking everyone to act in good faith, follow the law, and do your part. And when we see that not happening, we seek to get engaged. And when there are imperfections, unintended consequences in the law, then the legislature and the governor can work to address those. And we've seen those from time to time. And, you know, it's ever evolving what our legal 
regime will be to address our housing crisis. But, you know, it includes imperfections when it comes to the housing element. If there's ways to make it better, to make it stronger, make it more fair, make it more uniform, remove inconsistencies, we should work on that. And that should always be the goal. But there also are a lot of existing laws that move the needle, make the difference. Some are being flouted. Some, we have local jurisdictions dragging their feet. Some may be uh, misunderstood. And with collaborative approaches, we can get to good results. And so we're seeking results. We're seeking action. We're seeking outcomes as we work with our local jurisdictions throughout the state. So I'm glad you just referenced outcomes because I have have a question as it relates to an outcome uh, of litigation. When the governor first came into office, he and your predecessor, Javier Becerra, made a big announcement about a lawsuit against the city of Huntington Beach, you know, alleging that they were not following this housing element, housing planning law for growth. That case ultimately settled and the city's housing plan came into compliance. However, since then, Huntington Beach was sued under the Housing Accountability Act for rejecting a mixed income condo complex. And it's currently out of compliance again with its new housing plan. And so clearly you have a situation here where a lawsuit, even one that was announced to this great fanfare, didn't really change the long-term trajectory of that city as it relates to its housing decisions. And so question is, you know, what does that outcome say about the efficacy of this litigation strategy as it relates to what I think we would all would agree is the end goal, which is allowing more homes and specifically homes for low-income residents to actually get built? I think the enforcement actions matter. They matter for the city involved in the specific project or development that's under consideration. Generally, when a local jurisdiction is erected and outside entity with oversight authority, then they get back on track. If they get off track again, then more enforcement could possibly be necessary and needed. It's also really important to note that the great fanfare that you're talking about with respect to that lawsuit, it was important because it sent a message not just to Huntington Beach, to the state. That's what our actions have done as well. And that's not theoretical. You know, our action in Woodside with respect to a town council that declared their entire city a mountain lion sanctuary, our action in Pasadena, our other actions in places like Encinitas, those are being noted. City council members are on the record saying the attorney general's office is watching. The attorney general's office has acted in Woodside. The attorney general's office has acted in Pasadena. So we need to think carefully about what we do here. We don't want to go down a pathway that's similar to Woodside. We know that's going to be struck down. We need to do something different than what Pasadena is doing. We need to fully comply with SB9, SB10, whatever it may be. So I think a singular example of one city that may have been corrected once and may need to be corrected twice, I don't think that takes away from the importance of the impact of an active Department of Justice and an active HCD that are looking, that are collaborating, that are acting when appropriate when we see local jurisdictions not complying with the law. It's important. It makes a difference for the cities that we're directly involved with, as well as those who we are indirectly impacting to get them on track and in compliance. To follow up on the Pasadena incident that you mentioned, you wrote a letter to Pasadena about how they too were violating SB9, just like the famous Woodside incident, by claiming that landmark districts, in addition to historic districts, were exempt from from the lot split and, and duplex law. In response, Pasadena argued that SB9 explicitly excludes, quote, a city or county landmark or historic property or district. And while a question was posed in a planning commission hearing about whether the city could designate the whole city historic, um, they say they haven't quite done that. As a result, a Pasadena planning commissioner told me that they thought your office was picking cities to go after haphazardly. And 
putting Pasadena on the same level as Woodside was sending the wrong message. What do you make of their arguments there? And with so many questionable SB9 ordinances, why go after Pasadena's? We're getting involved in and getting active where we see violations of SB9. It can take a lot of different forms. A declaration of an entire township as a mountain lion sanctuary is one. Designating a landmark district as an exemption to SB9 when there's no such thing in the statute is another. They're both violations of the statute. People can have their own opinions as to which one is more egregious, which one is on the level of another. We're not creating a hierarchy of levels of violation. Any violation, whatever form it may be, subtle and nuanced or egregious and therefore all to see and anything in between. A violation is a violation. And we never made any comparisons to Pasadena with Woodside. That sounds like something that somebody may have projected on them or maybe internalizing. We had an action in Woodside. Separately, we had an action in Pasadena. We didn't say that Pasadena declared itself a mountain lion sanctuary. We said that Pasadena put in his ordinance something called the Landmark District that doesn't exist in SB9. And we're working with them collaboratively to get on the right track, to be compliant with the law. And I'm very happy to say, I think we've made a lot of progress and they will be on the right track. So we aren't putting people in certain buckets. We're not saying one city is like another. That might be something that some folks may be feeling or projecting on themselves or someone else said. We're just straight up looking at the facts and the law where we see a violation. We reach out to seek compliance and we hope that through our collaborative efforts, cities will get in compliance. They did in Woodside within 24 hours of our notice of violation. I'm thankful for that. I'm glad that there was a realization of the impropriety of the course that was being charted and a change of course to get on the right course. The same thing's happening in Pasadena, and I'm thankful for their collaboration and their efforts to get in compliance with the law. And just also along those lines of SB 9 there's a lot of overlap between the work that you do and enforcement unit at HCD. And when I spoke with HCD, the head of enforcement told me that they hadn't been given explicit authority over SB9, and so that fell more so in your territory. Is that true? Can you explain why that is, that the agency would need explicit authority to enforce what's already law? I haven't had that conversation, so I'm not sure what exactly they're referring to. There's a lot of overlapping jurisdiction when it comes to HCD and to the Attorney General's office and with AB 215. And, you know, we've got enhanced independent authority in the Attorney General's office that's unprecedented. So I'm thankful for a very collaborative partnership with HCD between our offices. We work together, we share ideas, we sometimes work together on the same case or with the same local jurisdiction. We sometimes allow one to take the lead while the other focuses on other priorities. There's more than enough challenges to go around that can fully occupy the time and attention and resources and skills of both of our teams. So we work together, we communicate with one another, we could both be involved in the same issue or enforcement of the same law, or we might be focusing on on different issues, all with the goal of being active, being engaged, and using our oversight authority to help ensure that laws don't just gather dust on the books, but are implemented and put into full force and effect on the ground. Just as the level of engagement on this issue in the California Department of Justice is unique and unprecedented, the level of engagement from HCD and its housing accountability unit is unprecedentedly strong. And together, I think we create a powerful team to really address housing challenges in the state of California. 
So I, w- I want to switch gears here and start asking some explicit sort of tenant uh, protection questions. You know, I know when you were in the legislature, one of the big bills that you were part of was the rent cap law that included just cause provisions that you authored. I want to ask a question about enforcement of that. And as I'm sure you're well aware, rents have been increasing significantly over the past year. And so I just want to put this sort of proposition to you. Let's assume that I am a tenant in a 12-unit property in suburban LA, and my landlord wants to give me a 12% rent increase. If I go to the AG's office and I tell them this is happening to me, what should I expect from you folks as a response to that? We're interested and eager to learn of any violations of the laws uh, protecting tenants, since we're talking about tenants, that tenants want to share with us. We're interested in personal experiences. We have a portal where we receive input and information from members of the public, including tenants, about violations of the law as they see it. Also have our teams that are in the field, specifically our community awareness response and engagement team that I created as attorney general, or CARE is the acronym where we are working with and for and side by side with community members to hear their concerns and to bring them to the attention of our office and where we have authority to address them in an appropriate use of our authority, we seek to get engaged. So that input from tenants is critical. We can't be everywhere. We don't have eyes and ears everywhere. So the insight and input from tenants is very helpful. One thing I want to be clear about is that we are not a private attorney for an individual tenant in an individual tenant case. So tenants should not seek that from us. That's not what we're doing. There are other sources of legal aid services that can be provided. That's where they should go for individualized legal representation in a specific, unique, individualized case. Sure. But if you're made aware, like, do you call the city? Do you send a nasty letter to the landlord? Like, what is the actual concrete response if you folks are made aware of a situation like I just described? We would first want to get our arms around the scope and the size of the challenge. We want to triangulate it with other sources of information that we have from other tenants or from advocacy groups or from our own knowledge, even from press. And generally, we're looking for sort of players that are significantly and systemically violating the law against multiple individuals. So consistent with our position of not providing legal representation in an individualized case, we want to address more systemic violations of the law. The next step we might take is based on evidence and information that we have, we might launch an investigation. We might use our investigative authority, our subpoenas, subpoenaing authority to get documents, to learn more, and then we could bring an action. We might also send a letter noticing the appropriate entity or landlord in this case of its duties, obligations, and responsibilities under California law. We did that when we heard from multiple tenants that there were systemic violations of the eviction uh, protections for tenants during COVID. We sent out letters to multiple landlords reminding them of what their duties and obligations were. We think hearing from the Department of Justice and having those landlords know that we're watching, care about the law, and will enforce it when it's violated, that that can make sure that can help ensure behavior is compliant with the law. So the short answer to your question is we would pull together the information received, consolidate it with any other similar information about the same entity, perhaps launch into an investigation if warranted based on our preliminary assessment, and then take legal action eventually is where we could go with it. 
You know, the last time on this podcast, we talked about a landlord that has over $1 billion in property and close to 20,000 units that he's in, his companies are in charge of or own mostly across Southern California. And with a deep and long history of serious habitability problems there, you know, I went to see a 425-unit complex that they owned in South LA and apartments had were rife with mold-like spores, tenants complained of broken sewage pipes, you know, faulty smoke detectors, a lot of things like that. This owner has been on various government agency radars for years, yet nothing has been done to take action sort of definitively against them holistically. Enforcement actions tended to relate to one building at a time. And so why do you think that there are gaps in enforcement as it relates to these, you know, sort of problem landlords? And, and what is your office doing about that? Not sure about what's happened in the past when I haven't been involved, but I will tell you that we are active, eager to be engaged interested in systemic violations of tenant protection laws and tenant rights by major landlords and property owners and will get involved and take action going forward. That's a priority of our team. It's a priority of our strike force and something that we're focused on. So we've received information about landlords that have been systemically violating the rights of tenants in multiple locations. That's of great interest to us. We do not comment on potential or pending investigations. So the most I can say at this point is stay tuned. When it comes to COVID protections, which you mentioned, does the state or locals need to do more, do you think, to protect tenants from eviction due to COVID? Or do you believe that enough time has lapsed and enough assistance has been offered that these extraordinary measures should elapse? I think two things. One, I think the state legislature should continue to have conversations about what is appropriate from a statewide perspective to provide a floor of protections, if any, given the evolving realities of COVID. We're obviously not in a lockdown scenario right now, but a lot of folks we know have struggled and COVID is not necessarily fully in our rearview mirror. Uh, just spiking in some places and the impact of tenants needs to be considered. Local jurisdictions should also consider the unique circumstances of their tenants in their local jurisdictions, what their needs are, what their challenges are, kind of support they should have from the government. So I think it's evolving. I don't think there's one answer for every jurisdiction. And I think legislators, elected leaders at every level, local and state, and even federal, should be considering what is the most appropriate and fair uh, set of protections, if any, for the tenants in certain jurisdictions in California and in California broadly. So Newsom recently unveiled his care court proposal to compel people with serious disabilities living on the street into treatment. Advocates have been sounding alarm bells over the infringement of civil liberties the program could present, as well as the ongoing shortage of housing and other services people would need to go into afterwards. What do you make of this proposal, of these concerns, and do you think that the legal system as it stands today is, is prepared to handle such a massive new responsibility? I'm on record and publicly in support generally of the concept of care courts that Governor Newsom has proposed. I think it's bold. I think it's compassionate. I think it strikes an important balance between compassion and care and civil liberties. And I think what we've been doing without more is not getting the job done and more must be done. And I think this is a very valuable and important tool and approach 
that can be successful. And I want to be absolutely clear about my views. I believe that we must address homelessness, mental illness, drug addiction with compassion and humanity. That's the starting point. And for those who are in need of support, in need of shelter, in need of mental health services, in need of rehabilitation programs, we should be doing everything in our power to provide uniquely accommodating support for each individual. And if we provide something that's better than an individual's current set of circumstances that addresses their needs, that provides shelter, that provides the services and programs that they specifically need, then I don't think it's unreasonable to say then that it's not voluntary for you to remain on the street if we're providing something better. That's very different than saying, you can't be here, go somewhere else. We're offering you nothing. That's been an approach that's been done before. That's not humane. That's not compassionate. That doesn't help solve the problem. That moves the problem. And so a social compact where we provide something better that is unique to you, that provides you the services and needs that, that address the services and programs that address your needs, and then making that involuntary after that, I think it strikes a reasonable balance. Of course, self-determination and individualized decision-making is always important. I think we also must realize that some folks, based on current cognitive state, whether it be impacted by mental illness or impacted by addiction, some folks are not always in a position to make the best decisions for them. So if we lead with compassion and humanity to provide better situations, I think making it involuntary after that is not inappropriate. So I look forward to this discussion. It's exactly the sort of debate we should be having. There should be people that are raising the flag about the involuntary nature, the concerns that that raises. And we should have a discussion about the right balance to strike here, given the current state of emergency that we have. So when you announced the new division that's going to focus on housing within the AG's office, you said that one of the key reasons for doing so, and I'm going to quote from the press release, was to advocate with the state legislature, federal agencies, and other state agencies to advance a right to housing. And I'm curious, what does a right to housing mean to you? And what specifically have you been doing in this area since you've been in office? You know, this is an area that has been of interest to me. I introduced a constitutional amendment as a legislator to have a right to housing. And it's not unique in California. It would not be unique. It would be unique in California, but not unique in the world for California to do that. Other nations in Africa, in Europe, have a housing as a, as a human right. And it looks like things like not evicting someone into homelessness. And there's other terms and components that provide more specificity and concrete components to the housing as a human right. But generally, we need to look at shelter as a basic human need. And that in a civilized society where we uplift humanity and promote the human condition, individuals should have a right to it, just as there is a right to the air we breathe, the water we drink. And so the idea that I was working on involved having a independent entity, like a solicitor general or an inspector general, who would act on behalf of the government and bring to court cases where there were cities or other jurisdictions that could do more to honor the human right to housing. And sort of you could have a consent decree with oversight and, and ongoing compliance through a court order. And that's just an idea, just like the care courts idea. This is an idea that's deserving of input, different perspectives, evolution, fine tuning, introduction of you know rebuttals and addressing those concerns. But this is something that I think we really need to continue to move towards. Mayor Steinberg here in Sacramento has been a huge advocate for housing as a human right. 
I know that in LA, there's advocates that are seeking to have LA be a pilot for housing as a human right. So this is an idea that's gaining steam and that more and more people are talking about and what it looks like and how it's enforced and how you ensure compliance and what meets the requirements of the human right and what doesn't, I think all are important discussions to have. But that idea that all people are deserving of housing and and shelter, I think is an important foundational and fundamental uh, concept. So do you plan to advance something on your own or advance something with the imprimatur of the AG's office, whether it's a constitutional amendment or something else or legislation that would address that point? I think that's uh, an idea that we will continue to give thought to and pursue in the future. It's not something for this legislative year that we've promoted and that are prioritizing with the work that we're doing to enforce the existing laws, to protect our tenants from being evicted, to have more housing be built, I think helps us get closer to the aspiration. But I think the idea is deserving and in need of additional discussion, a model that can work and then that can be scaled. It might be that starting it in a local jurisdiction is the best place to start it. So we can sort of have a laboratory of innovation, see what works, what doesn't, fine tune it before we go prime time and scale it statewide. So it's an idea that continues to be an animating principle for me, a foundational idea of how I see housing and something that I will look for opportunities to continue to work on with partners. To wrap this up, we want to do a quick lightning round to get you on the record about some of these high-level concepts. The rules of the game are basically true-false, and if you'd like a little explanation as to why, I'll start us off. Uh, Rent control is a necessary part of a functioning housing system in high-cost states like California to protect tenants, true or false. I think it's an important tool and that local jurisdictions should have an opportunity to determine whether or not they want rent control. Some have determined that they do and they have it. We also need some statewide protections in the form of anti-rent gouging. And we have that, proud to have been a co-author of that bill. In the absence of a truly functioning housing system, rent control can play a very important role. We don't have that truly functioning housing system because half of Californians spend more than 30% of their income on rent. So how's that for lightning? <laughs> we'll say that we'll go with true with that. Okay. Uh, Sounds we'll, like we'll a true. Do, we'll just do up just two more if that's okay. True or false, the construction of market rate homes in disadvantaged areas does not cause gentrification or displacement, but rather prevents it. I think every new housing unit is a good unit. Some are better than others. Affordable housing for very low income, extremely low income is the best. But market rate housing is good too, because we need more types of housing across income levels. We also need to always have racial equity and environmental justice concerns in mind as well. Prop 13 is a necessary protection for homeowners who would otherwise pay too much in property taxes, true or false? I think just like rent control, Prop 13 is necessary to protect some homeowners who would otherwise face housing insecurity, but no one can dispute that Prop 13's unintended consequences have been bad for the state and that there's huge disparities, two homes side by side with very different property taxes, less funding for important services like our public education system. You can, and folks have written a dissertation on this, <laughs> uh, but that's my short answer. All right, A.G. Bonta, anything else you would like to impart to our very vast and influential audience? Not, perhaps not as influential as you, but uh, nevertheless. Just thank you for your interest in housing of all types, the, the deep investigations and journalism that you've done. I really am thankful for those in our free press who uncover injustices and have provided 
guidance to where folks like me, the public servants who are trying to do the best at our jobs can get involved to help people who are in need of it. So let me say thank you for that. And also I'm very proud of my housing strike force. We're just getting started. It's first of its kind in the California Department of Justice and uh, we're gonna continue to be active. And we always are looking for results and outcomes. We're not looking to disparage anyone or cast blame. We're looking for outcomes to help the people of California, families who are struggling with unaffordable housing. So I look forward to the ongoing work and I'm thankful that you have me with you today. Thank you so much for joining us, AG. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you enjoy what we're offering, please continue to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other places where you can find us. Again, continues to be important so that new people can discover our great discussions on California housing. Our editor, as always, is Victor Figueroa. Victor, thank you so much for all the hard work that you do. My name is Liam Dillon. I write for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias. M. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.